Okay, I just want to first uh, thank Liz and the entire Oxpeace team. This is the eighth annual conference, and I think it's extraordinary that this has now become an institution well before today, but uh, long may it continue. I'm really pleased that there is this forum every year. Uh, the, the focus of this year's conference has been on the relationship between the study of war and the study of peace. And I thought that in this concluding session, I'd return to this general theme and offer a few remarks using very broad brushstrokes about how the practice, the actual practice of peace building can be enriched by the academic study of, of violent conflict. Now, as I said, very broadly speaking, there are two dominant, but by no means exclusive, as we've seen with the very varied presentations today, two dominant approaches to the study of violent conflict. And both of these approaches have also been in evidence today. There's an approach and a, a corresponding literature that seeks to derive generalizable claims about violent conflict from analyzing the now quite considerable data that we have on civil wars. Uh, we have, thanks to, among others, the Uppsala University. There's another approach in corresponding literature that seeks to understand the dynamics of specific conflicts. And within each of these approaches, a variety of different research methods are employed. These include quantitative analysis, commonly using logit or probit models or Cox proportional models, qualitative analysis using discourse analysis, historical archives or comparative case study, and mixed methods using a combination of quantitative and qualitative analysis. Again, a lot of this was in evidence today in the research that was showcased in some of the parallel sessions. Each approach to the study of violent conflict arguably has a certain utility, potentially if not actually, for the practice of peace building. So take the first approach. Based on large N, relatively speaking, large N studies of armed conflicts, scholars have quite a lot to say to tell us about civil war onset. Scholars have identified a wide range of factors that using various research methods are used to explain why civil wars occur. Many of these factors can be grouped in terms of their primary emphasis in three distinct categories, on the motivation of combatants and their supporters, on the feasibility of rebellion, and on the resilience of national institutions. Now, motivations encompasses a wide range of often grievance-based sub-factors, including relative deprivation and horizontal inequalities, ethnic insecurity, and political and social and economic discrimination. Feasibility stresses the importance of opportunity over motivation, the fact that rebellion, for instance, is more likely to occur where material conditions favor it, notably where the terrain's mountainous, allowing rebels to hide, where valuable natural resources are plentiful, allowing rebels to finance their activities from trade in these resources, and where external security commitments to governments are weak, allowing the rebels to challenge governments more easily. Resilience emphasizes the vulnerability of the state to various internal 
and external pressures, for example, rising food prices or climate change, and the capacity of states and their institutions to cope effectively with these pressures and challenges. A number of explanations of the outbreak of civil war combine several of these factors. Now, how is all this relevant to the practice of peace building? Well, if one can identify the factors that underlie civil wars, it seems reasonable to assume then that the basis for building peace will reside in being able to manipulate those factors effectively by eliminating discrimination, for instance, by establishing more representative institutions, or by strengthening state capacity, bearing in mind the great, great difficulty of bringing about many of, if not all of these changes. But there are a few problems with this logic. The first problem is that scholars are not of one mind on these matters. So to varying degrees, scholarship in, in this area is marked by tensions and a lack of consensus. Just to give you an example, there's a lack of agreement among scholars with regard to the contribution that peacekeeping makes to the duration of peace, by which I mean how long a peace endures after a civil war has ended. Some scholars have found that the presence of UN peacekeeping operations significantly improves the chances of a peace enduring, whereas other scholars have found little evidence that peacekeeping increases the duration of peace. Similarly, some scholars argue that conflicts that end in a peace agreement are more likely to recur because competing parties have the ability and capacity to resume armed conflict. Conversely, other scholars claim that a durable peace is possible if a peace agreement is the outcome of conflict. As one leading peace and conflict researcher, Charles Call, Chuck Call, observed in his most recent book, there is tremendous disparity among scholars about whether certain factors are important or not and about the, the, the degree to which they are important. And this is absolutely fundamental. <coughs> so that's one problem, a lack of consensus. The second problem is that even where scholars agree about which factors matter, they may disagree as to the reasons why these factors matter. For instance, scholars who agree that peacekeeping makes a positive contribution to peace durability maintain variously that it succeeds because it mitigates the security dilemma among warring parties, or it succeeds because it reinforces peace settlements, or it succeeds because it constitutes a, a projection of power. This is the thesis of, of uh, Lee Howard's forthcoming book. In short, the identification of critical factors alone is not sufficient to account for why conflict occurs. There needs also to be a credible and verifiable explanation of why these factors matter, and scholars disagree about this too. But perhaps the biggest problem with this approach is that it's extremely difficult to produce generalizable conclusions with high levels of confidence, although Scholars are often very confident about their findings. But the difficulty is that the phenomena in question civil wars is extremely complex. And because the data that are being analyzed are often poor or even non-existent, and we're talking about data coming from conflict-affected areas, uh, so and in, in what often are uh, 
previously already very poor countries. So anyway, the, the, these are not uh, data rich or rich with reliable data. The complexity means that there'll always be idiosyncratic features of a conflict that may need to be borne in mind to understand it. And the scarcity of data or of reliable data <coughs> means that scholars often have to rely on all kinds of proxies that may or may not represent the factors in question well or well enough. They do the best they can. Now, this is what's appealing about the other approach, which focuses on specific conflicts and the dynamics of those conflicts in the way that, say, an ethnographer approaches an alien society. The value of this other approach is that a researcher can take into consideration all relevant factors without having to worry about lack of comparability with other cases because she's not seeking to derive a theory or explanation about civil wars, but rather an account of one civil war. And there have been some excellent studies produced on the basis of this approach, which have led in some instances to very valuable insights into what the requirements for an enduring peace might be in this particular case. Now, of course, this approach may be no, no more likely to yield consensus among scholars than the first approach. The wars in the former Yugoslavia, for instance, have produced numerous but competing explanations for its occurrence by scholars with impeccable credentials, many of them. But again, with such complex social phenomena as civil wars, this will often be the case that there will be uh, considerable debate and discrepancy in accounts among, among scholars. Now these two approaches are not mutually exclusive. Indeed, I'd argue that the most fruitful approach, at least for peace-building purposes, lies with a combination of these two approaches. Large-end studies point towards certain factors that are most deserving of consideration in thinking about what could be an effective approach to take in building peace in a specific case. Deep knowledge of that specific case, in turn, can tell us how likely it is that a peace-building strategy designed to address these factors will contribute to the consolidation of peace. So to give you an example, a lot of evidence drawn from large-end studies points towards political exclusion as a significant factor that explains civil unrest. Peace-building strategy based on political inclusion, often power-sharing of some kind, is thought therefore to be key to sustaining peace. And numerous examples from Mozambique to El Salvador to Macedonia, Liber Liberia, they all bear this out. But it isn't a panacea, and it isn't applicable everywhere. And that's something that only deep knowledge of specific context can tell you. Now, by the way, although I've been talking exclusively about scholarship, it's also important that we take into consideration local knowledge, the knowledge that uh, people local to a, a region, indigenous to a region, including, incidentally, local scholars possess in making assessments of the kind that I've just been talking about. I think this is a much underutilized resource. Okay, now the Trump card, by which I don't mean the Donald Trump card, although, <laughs> although, although he has some relevance to any discussion about exclusion. But the, but the, <laughs> the, the Trump card in response to my analysis 
could be that addressing the causes of war does not necessarily lead to identification of the requirements for peace. We often hear that a peace process to be successful has to address the root causes of a conflict, and in many cases that may be true. But, and we discussed this a little bit on the session in, on Syria just previously, the root causes of a conflict may no longer be salient or as salient after the conflict as a consequence of changes that the conflict may have generated. Changes that include major population displacements and a new ethnic geography, or the emergence of new elites, or as John Bennett put it in his presentation, if I remember correctly, war catalyzes pre-existing conflicts. And that has implications for the kind of peace that can be built or, or must be built if it's going to be sustainable. So, in fact, while I still maintain the importance of the study of war or the study of conflict for the purpose of, of building peace, what's required fundamentally is to understand the requirements for sustainable peace in the aftermath of war. And that's something which Peter and Denise have both been talking about. Uh, Peter more broadly, Denise more specific to reconciliation. And that too requires deep knowledge of the local environment, but also, ideally, general knowledge of how successful states cope effectively with various challenges to or pressures on peace. So again, we're back to the virtues of a, of a dual approach of the more the broad, more generalizable, as well as the specific. But even armed with such knowledge, we can never know with any precision, with any certainty, just how sustainable a peace may be. So when, for instance, Kosovo erupted in violence in 2004, it was widely known at the time that the frustration within the Kosovo-Albanian community was mounting and that continued irresolution of the, the so-called status question, whether Kosovo would become independent of, of Serbia or not, the continued irresolution, it was known, could not go on indefinitely. But even deep knowledge of Kosovo arguably couldn't establish that Kosovo was at the breaking point at that particular time. And what we need really are stress tests so that we can know whether the peace that has been established in the wake of violent conflict is a stable peace. Can such tests be devised? What would they look like? Maybe again, with Peter's criteria in mind, they would reflect some of those. But these are, in any event, key questions for peace building. And I'd argue that this is where scholarship and practice are both deficient. But let me close just by saying that uh, I've been discussing what can be referred to broadly as epistemological gaps that reflect the limits of our current knowledge. Unless these gaps also reflect the limits of knowledge full stop, it's imperative for scholars interested in understanding the nature of peace to persist in overcoming them, persist in overcoming these gaps. That can't be done by studying war. That can't be done by studying peace. That can only be done by studying war and peace together. Thanks. <laughs>